I'm Caitlin. And I'm Shelby. And this is Finding Gavin's Voice. A disability advocacy podcast building community around open conversations. Hello, this is Shelby Harvey. Today we will be interviewing my mom, Shelly Gibson. And we're also still here with Caitlin. Yes, I'm here. Um, I'm excited. This is our first episode and I'm just thankful for this opportunity. I think we have a really good resource as far as Shelby's mom, and we could not be happier that she is our first episode interviewee. So yeah, welcome Shelly. Hi, I'm Shelly Gibson. I will say that I'm very humbled and honored to be able to be a part of this and to share what I can with others. Um, I have taught special education now just finished my 30th year um, 25 of it spent there at Katusa High School and I have had the opportunity to teach a vast number of students ranging from all sorts of uh, disabilities from intellectual disability to multiple disabilities um, to OHI and autism traumatic brain injured students so Shelly, what um, got you interested in special education? Because I always think that's a pretty interesting story for professionals. Like what drove them to that population? Because like you said, it is overwhelmingly diverse and special education teacher can encompass so many different things and there's different types and different severities. And I think a lot of listeners and even parents who are with newly diagnosed um, kiddos, they are just so unaware of how diverse it is. Um, So can you talk a little bit about what drove you um, to pursuing a degree in special education? Well, I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. When I was in kindergarten, I would come home from school and, and get my brother and my stuffed animals and line them up and teach than what I had learned at school. But it wasn't until I went on a Cub Scout activity with my dad. And my dad always had, he had a big heart. And he introduced me to a Cub Scout troop with just special needs young men. And just being involved with that just sparked a a love for those type of students. And we left there and I told my daddy, I said, those are the kind of kids that I want to teach. And so when I went to college, the very first class I took, it was over the summer, I did a practicum with students with mental uh, handicaps. And that was a true eye opener. I spent a week as a camp counselor and that just sealed the deal that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to work with that population and be able to help them um, academically, or if it was just being able to help find resources or find their niche, because every one of those students, they may have a disability that's very visible, but they, they also have abilities that, you know, you may have to dig in a little deeper to find. And that was the challenge that I wanted to accept when I went to college. Yeah, I love that. And I think uh, that's pretty common for most people that I've met within the field of special education, therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy. Most people had some sort of experience that really opened their eyes to that community. 
And they're also different, you know, and it's different types of students that they came in contact with or adults with disabilities. And it's just amazing to see how those experiences have fostered a an interest in special education. Um, if you don't mind me asking, when did you graduate with your degree? Um, I graduated in 1990. Okay. It was the former uh, degree. So this is the only time I will ever say the R word because otherwise the hairs on the back of my neck will stand up. My degree from uh, in issue was with mental retardation. That's exactly the reason I asked, because I feel like over the years, especially 1990 to now, you know, 2022, so much has changed in the field of special education. And just like you said, even the terminology that is used, mm-hmm. you know, so I love that you brought that up, that that's what your degree is actually in, because now, you know, we don't use the R word, you know, we're trying yeah. to form other people in the public that this is not acceptable. This term is not used anymore. And I think we're finally seeing that become like less and less used. Um, I remember when I was in high school and Shelby, you probably have a similar experience, but like I heard that word all the time. Absolutely. And it's been a word that um, I've never used regularly. I've never used at all except for the label until the label changed. And I'm so glad that it did. I just wish more people would realize that there are so many other synonyms. I think it's a slur just as much as any other, you know, negative things that you can call people. Well, let me interject with Special Olympics. One of the big things um, is inclusion and they do a, a campaign. It's spread the word to end the word. Since we have been able to do that, in, not only in the school, but in my everyday life. I've ran into people, they're just, and I hate to say it this way, but they're just not educated. They don't realize that that R word is so hurtful. And I've had uh, colleagues, whether it be at school or with my Girl Scout affiliation, they're like, Shelly, I did not know how hurtful that word sounded. Thank you for getting on to me and giving me that look so that I can change my vocabulary. So I think it is, it's just one of those things where we have to educate people, whether it be uh, by our example, by posting on Facebook, you know, just sharing how hurtful that word is. And uh, we've done that big push. And I will say, I may be jumping ahead of your questions. I apologize. But I, over the last, I would say, 10 to 12 years there at the high school, we have seen a decrease of other people using that word and less bullying because that word is not allowed. Good. That's excellent news. And I, I knew about the campaign, but it had slipped my mind what it was called. And so thanks for bringing that up. That's definitely something that we'll want to address, especially when it comes time that the the campaign is actually running through the year. But uh, I remember times growing up because I knew due to your experiences, mom, that the word was so hurtful. I remember uh, teaching my friends that the word was hurtful. And I have been, I've had people slip because it was such a part of their vocabulary for a long time and say it in my presence. 
And as soon as they realize they said it, they look at me and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't use that word anymore. I don't know why it came out of my mouth. And I don't even have to say anything anymore. They already know. Yes. I mean, and that's really, I think when we're talking about parents and not even just parents of individuals with disabilities, but all parents, and we're talking about inclusion, these are conversations we should be having with our children of why we don't use that word, because they're going to be the ones that are telling their peers that it's not okay. You know, and my hope is that maybe by the time my kids are older, that it's not something that's really ever heard, but same with you, Shelby. I remember having those conversations with peers and even young adults. Like once I got into the professional world and I had to inform them, I was like, Hey, let's use a different word. You know, that's actually a very derogatory term. And same thing, you know, I've seen them slip up and they're like, I'm so sorry. And I've seen them shift their vocabulary. And I think that's huge, you know, and it's having those conversations and extending that information um, in our everyday environment so that people know that it's not okay. And likewise, Shelly, I know that besides the terminology, that there has been so much change in the field of special education. So can you talk a little bit about differences you've seen over the years, how special education has really evolved um, for the better, or I mean, even maybe sometimes for the worse, but what have you seen as a major shift in the field of special education over the last, you know, 10 years? Even first starting out, there were fewer students. There weren't so many students labeled as special education. When Mark and I got married, I went back to school. So I wound up, I have uh, my LD certification, my ED certification, and then I went to get um, the autism and the traumatic brain injury. So I'm, I've got all of those added onto my certificate now. When I first started, there were very, very few numbers. And we were very isolated, not so much in the building from their regular peers, but to where they weren't out in the regular classroom that much. They were in a classroom with me most of the day. Sometimes that's what they need as far as education. We also need that social aspect. And we also need to be able to teach their peers, hey, these are students too. So I have seen over the years to where We have really pushed for inclusion and some of those things are good if you take a student with a disability and you put them in a regular classroom, but you also have to keep in mind that special ed student may only read on a first grade level. So trying to expect them to do curriculum in high school chemistry class is not going to happen. It's going to be over their head. So you've got to be very picky for lack of a better word, of how you include them in the regular classroom population. We have had some success. I I will share a quick story. I had a student that was recently tested, qualified for what is now called the intellectually disabled category. And he was in a regular government class. Well, one of the things they had to do was they had to memorize part of the Constitution. Well, that teacher and I got together and she's like, Shelly, this is not, that's not going to work for this student. Would it be okay with you if I had him memorize the Pledge of Allegiance and he came to me and did that one-on-one? And I'm like, that is excellent. We were able to have that student in the regular population. So we had that 
social interaction. And we all know social skills are so important right now and every day, but, but he also was able to get what he needed because learning to say the Pledge of Allegiance for him was what was better for that class requirement. So you have to be able to look at all of that technology in and of itself has grown because I remember when you didn't send emails, you had to write a note and send it to with a student to wherever you needed to go. You weren't able to have phone calls in your classroom because there wasn't a phone in your classroom. Now every classroom has a telephone to where you can call the office, you can call another teacher. A parent has easier access to you because of the emails, of the telephone, your class sizes. We have more and more students that are identified as special education. I have seen a rise in that population over the last 10 years. It makes up about almost a fourth of our student population at the high school. And so I, th- I don't know if that's due to, it's easier to identify Um, this past school year, I had three students who were tested and qualified as freshmen in high school for special education. That was just, that just blew my mind that it took that long for them to be identified, you know, and it's just, some people want to say it's because of COVID, but to have three different students with different backgrounds being identified, I don't know if I want to blame it on COVID. That is extremely late for identification, and it's something that is a topic that we should probably investigate a little bit further in another episode, because I hear that all the time, kids that fall through the cracks, there's more identification, and is it parents are more informed, you know, receive services, and they know that there's something going on, and then for those kids that aren't identified until high school, you can't even imagine the struggle of school for them up until that point and how they slip through the cracks until their freshman year of high school. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, yes, we identify them great, but also, you know, probably really didn't even have access to as far as education because they weren't being served properly. I think part of it might've been, and this could be due to COVID, but during that time, parents were being more involved and maybe they realized there were more issues. I do know with one particular young lady, there was a lot of emotional anxiety issues that came from the home and her surroundings, which caused her to have some academic issues as well. I mean, there is a that these students are having to deal with. I'm glad that you brought that up because I think mental health is definitely something that we'll address eventually in a, in a future episode. But I think that mental health issues like depression and anxiety, especially in our youth, I think those challenges easily translate into other disabilities at school. And it's not necessarily the same thing as someone who would test low on um, and be considered intellectually disabled, but it does cause them to have delays and not be able to keep up with their peers because of absences or because Um, you know, they just have a chemical imbalance and they're able to learn at the same rate. And I think that's a very interesting perspective that we could touch on um, going forward. There is a category, it's called OHI, Other Health Impaired. That's the category where you catch some of these students who have depression, they have anxiety, because those things affect how you perform at school. 
And so at least if the testing is done correctly, where we as a school can look and see, yes, we can identify them as OHI to get them services, then that's what, what we will do. But there's a fine line in there too that we have to be able to not cross. Is that a newer thing or has that always been available? I don't know how new the OHI category is, to be honest with you. I know more and more students are being identified as OHI. When I first graduated, my first job was for a public school. So that was, what, seven years ago? And when I entered the school, OHI was a category. And I would have to agree with Shelly, you're, you know, OHI can encompass so much. It's other health impairment. So more outside testing done too, especially in the areas of depression, anxiety, all those medical diagnoses coming into the school. And yeah, I mean, it qualifies them for services and I mean, it should, right. And so it only makes sense that that is a category. I don't know when exactly it started being used, but I will say now I see it a lot. OHI, OHI, you know, and whether that's ADHD, which I know that we're going to talk about an episode about that later on, but ADHD, I mean, it encompasses OHI can really encompass so much, which is great because it's allowing those students to, um, their educational needs being met. So yeah, I don't know how long we would probably need to look into that. I was trying to Google it just really quick. And did you know that there's 14 different categories? I know there's a lot. I didn't realize that. That's just my ignorance. But I mean, the two of you work within the field. I'm parent and I'm also um, the daughter of a a teacher that's done this for 30 years. So I I know some things, but I definitely don't have the same level of experience. Shelly, has most of your work been in secondary education? Have you always been in high school? After I graduated from college, yes. You know, when I was in college, I did my pre-interning and I loved the elementary and I'm like, that's where I want to go because I loved those little kids. And then when I started working my first job, it was high school special ed. And then I've been at Catoosa now for 25 years at high school. And now I'm thinking, why did I ever want to work with the little ones? Because (laughs) these big ones, you know, you see them at the end of their journey, you help them prepare for after graduation. And to me, that is very rewarding. You know, you get to see them at the end and kind of help them. And so I I think that's where I was meant to be all along. Yes. And I think so much about secondary is, um, and I even see this a little bit on the speech side, because there becomes a point where you have to start thinking about the future. And I know that that's so hard from a parental perspective, especially if you have a kiddo that has multiple disabilities, you know, there becomes a a point where you're like, okay, what are our outcomes beyond high school? And I know that is so scary for families to think about what is their life going to look like after high school. And so that's where so much of, you know, your knowledge really comes in is, you know, getting them prepared. You're talking about those outcomes, but it's, you know, really getting them prepared for their life and what skills do they have where they can maybe have a job or have a job with a job coach or even function in a different living environment than their home environment. Um, Can you talk a little bit about about that side of things, like what you're seeing with families and their struggles with transitioning out of high school, you know, what does that look like for you in your job? Some of it is very difficult because the parents struggle 
with, I don't know if I can let go. I don't know if how they will succeed past high school. So let me answer your question with a couple of success stories. I had a young man that was diagnosed with autism when he was in second grade. When he got to high school, he told me, he said, Ms. Gibson, I want to be in the military. And the hardest thing for me, I, I, I could not be a dream crusher. I just couldn't do it. I knew that he would struggle passing the physical test. And I, but I had no idea how he would do on the ASVAB. He was very, very intelligent, especially in history. He loved history. He took the ASVAB test and he didn't do very well. And he said, but Miss Gibson, I have that autism label, so I won't be able to join the military. And I said, you know what? Let's do this. I said, you're up for your three-year reevaluation because, you know, we have to reevaluate their needs and services every three years. I said, let's do this test and let's see where we're at. And then we'll go from there. And he's like, okay, we'll talk. So I talked to his mom and she was on board. So we got the ball rolling and got the test results back and had scheduled the uh, meeting. And he came to me that morning and he said, this is the most important day of my life. I can hardly wait to get these results. Well, we met and the gentleman that did the testing, he said, you were misdiagnosed. At second and third grade, autism mirrors OCD. You are not autistic. You're more OCD. This kid was elated. That just made his day. Gave me the biggest hug. He still wasn't able to pass the, the ASFAB. So instead, he went to OSU and he was doing history notes for an OSU professor. He did that for about five years. And now he's came back to the Catoosa area. He was working as a chef, but that really wasn't his niche. So now he is working as, yes, it's a volunteer firefighter position, but he's still doing, you know, doing that volunteer work. And so he sent me a message on Facebook wanting to know if I remembered him. And I said, of course, I remember you. I remember all of my students. He uh, came up to visit me and he was in his uniform. I told him, I said, you know, you always wanted to be in the military. Why? He said, because I wanted to help people. And I said, well, guess what you're doing? You just achieved your goal. You wanted to help people. Now you are doing that as a fireman. And he said, you know, I never thought of it that way. He was able to go and do something. I had another young man, very low functioning. His mom, though, was bound and determined that this young man was going to get his driver's license. So we worked and worked and worked. He was able to pass his test. He started driving. And after high school, now he's still going to live at home, but he was able to drive from his house to the bowling alley twice a week. He was in a bowling league. He's able to drive to Reesers in Bixby where he worked and everything is great. So these kids who, you know, parents may think, no, we're not gonna be able to do much. Yeah, yeah, they can. I've had another young man who, um, same boat, read about a second or third grade level. He wound up going to Votech, passed the class four preventative maintenance, went on to work at a, the dealership in Claremore, changing oil, bought, him, bought his own house, had his own lawn care business. Um, he decided after working there, he uh, didn't really want to work on cars. So he started working at the city of Broken Arrow in the water department, still being able to pay his own bills and do everything that everybody said he wasn't able to do. I think if, and it's hard on parents, I totally understand that. But if they push them a little bit and encourage, these students will be able to be out in the real world and make a difference. I've seen it too many times. And will some of them be able to live on their own? Who knows? They might, they might not, but they can still be a productive citizen and hold down a job and make a difference. You know, those are the things that parents need to realize. 
you know, I have another young lady who works at Walmart um, and is a team lead over six departments, you know, who, who, who knows how far these kids will go if you just encourage them to keep going. Because right. society says they can't. They've been told that they can't for so long. And so then to be able to hear from someone that they admire, a, a teacher, they are capable and they can do it probably changes their own perspective of themselves. Oh, yeah. And that's important for them to have that opportunity and have that feeling of doing something in the community, something to live for, you know. And I know that that's something my sister has mentioned before, that she just wants to feel like she's doing something. She does a lot of volunteering within the community, and I think that helps her, her mental state, especially during COVID that was so hard and when she wasn't able to actually go and do those things. So you can see a shift in their personalities and their mental state when they have something that they can look forward to. And I love that you brought that up, Shelly, because I know that on the parental side of things, there are so many worries that come with any sort of diagnosis. And so you always wonder what that future is going to look like. And it's going to be different sometimes. And it's okay if it's not a paying job, as long as they have something that they're working towards, just that sense of independence is created once they have a volunteer position, or like you said, your student, even driving up to his bowling league, you know, that's his independence and everybody craves that. Um, And so I think that's so important too, um, to just present those opportunities to parents. And I know Shelby has mentioned to me that her brother went through speech when he was younger. And so you kind of experienced both sides of things, Shelly, you have all this knowledge of special education, and then you had a son that needed speech services. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that and kind of how you navigated that? Was it something that you were aware of as a special education teacher? Or did you go through that sense of denial a little bit that I hear so many parents talk about, which is totally normal to go through. But as a professional in the field, how did you navigate that personal experience that you had with a child who needed some intervention services? Funny you use the word denial. I don't, I wasn't in denial, so to speak. I knew he needed help. And so we did everything we could to make sure, you know, he started speech when he was three years old. I was on the other end of the denial. I was the one that wanted to make sure everybody understood what he was trying to tell him instead of stopping and giving him an opportunity. And it took me a while. I know Shelby even did the same thing. He would try to tell us, you know, what he wanted and Shelby go, oh, he wants that instead of going, okay, we've got to be patient. We've got to make sure that he's able to speak for himself. And and that was, that was the hardest part for me. But then the other, uh, someone who needed the speech therapy and had to be on an IEP, I also was able to see how important it was for a parent to be an advocate. Because when he started school, I had one of his teachers tell me that he wasn't able to produce the sounds and being able to read. And I'm like, well, that's awfully funny because his speech teacher did an evaluation and he was able to produce every sound of every letter in the alphabet. So maybe it's not him, it's you. And that teacher just looked at me and I said, he's, she wanted to hold him back. And I said, no, he's not going to be held back because I believe that you just can't understand him. And 
that was the first time where I felt like I had to be a, a, an advocate and be the one to speak for him. And after that, I, yes, I was still an advocate, but I had to realize that I can't be the one speaking for him every single day. He has, I had to give him time to be able to express what he needed and what he wanted. And it was a real struggle when he hit fifth grade or sixth grade over at the middle school, but he, he managed to get through. And then, you know, when you have the same speech teacher for so long and then she retired. So we had new ones like every, every year. And so when he hit his sophomore year in high school, and it was hard for him being in high school, going to speech therapy because he didn't receive any other special ed services. He just received speech therapy. And so it was getting harder and harder to pull him out of class. And I, um, he came to me one day and he said, mom, I don't want to go anymore. And we had to sit down and have that hard conversation. And so I told him, I said, I tell you what, I will make you a deal. I will not make you go to speech therapy because he was going once a week. I said, but you have got to remember what you've been taught. You have to remember to slow down. You have to remember to make sure you pronounce certain letters because he was still struggling with certain letters at the time. And um, I said, if you do that, then I will sign off and let you quit speech therapy. And he was all for that. Well, fast forward to today and he's finishing up. Matter of fact, today, his second year of teaching special education. So it was, it was hard at the beginning because I wanted to be his voice. But after I'm like, okay, Shelly, you got to let him look what he was able to achieve. Wow. And how amazing that he decided to enter the field of special education as well. And again, probably a lot with his experience of you as a mother and then also his experience of being on an IEP and what school like looked like for him. So it offers him such a unique perspective as a teacher, I'm sure. And I love to hear about those success stories, especially on the speech side side of things, because um, if our listeners listen to our intro, I am a speech therapist and Shelby offers a very unique perspective, which I'll give her time to talk about that in her journey and kind of what that looks like for you, Shelby, which I think leads us into the rest of our questions. So without putting words in your mouth, Shelby, do you want to kind of talk about your perspective, where you are on your journey right now? Yeah, of course. So um, I, I grew up with my mom as a special education teacher. I've seen and known most of her students as she's been teaching the same number of years I've been alive. And so, and then I, of course, like she said, I I remember when my brother was struggling that nobody could understand him. Mom could sometimes, my dad couldn't most of the time and, but I could. And so instead of letting my poor little brother just get so flustered and frustrated, I would just say, mom, he's asking for you know, ice cream or a spoon or whatever. But where I'm at now is Caitlin is actually my son's speech therapist. When he was about 18 months old, I noticed that he babbled some, Um, he made several sounds, but he wasn't saying any words. And I was immediately concerned. Actually, my concern started at at about 15 months. And everybody told me to just be patient with him, that boy's learn slower than girls, et cetera, et cetera. But I just knew in my gut that there was something bigger going on. 
And so I just, I waited it out. And at 18 months, I brought it up to his pediatrician again. And he said, um, I'll put you in for a speech eval. I said, great. I talked with Caitlin. Um, we went to high school together. So I knew, I knew of her experience and as being a, a speech therapist. So we had a good conversation about things that I could do with him in the end around while we waited for the evaluation that happened. And then he started speech um, in June of 2021. So he's been doing it now almost a year. And we then discovered that he could also benefit from occupational therapy. So he's been doing that for a year come July. And I've seen a lot of improvement. He's still not speaking. He's communicating more, which is great. We'll talk more about how communication isn't always just verbal um, as we go along and have these conversations. So, but anyway, Gavin is communicating more and is able to do more things. But I, as his parent, I still have some concerns regarding some of his behaviors. So we have actually, by the time this airs, we would have already completed his autism spectrum disorder evaluation. And parent, I, I did go through the, the denial that Caitlin was asking my mom about. A little bit of that was because nobody seemed to see it but me. And so then I felt like I was crazy or I was being dramatic because uh, I have a tendency to be both of those things sometimes. And uh, so anyway, it took me probably about six months and a lot of tears. And I, I finally came to terms with, uh, you know, being, being autistic, being a person with autism is not a moral failing. It isn't by any means, you know, a, a, a sentence for a terrible existence. It's just an opportunity for me as his mom to help shape this world to work for him instead of trying to mold him to work in the world. So anyway, that's actually why I'm doing this podcast with Caitlin because I'm super passionate about wanting to make sure that early intervention happens. It was so important to me. The moment I knew that there was something going on, I knew I needed to get him into services. Shelby, thank you so much for sharing that, which we'll talk about that in other episodes more in depth, but it's so important for parents to hear that because I think so many parents can relate and whether it's, they think that there's something else going on, like on the autism spectrum, a speech delay, motor delay, fine motor delay, all of these things are so important. And I think as parents, we often second guess our gut feeling and it's hard for outsiders to see that, you know, we don't see these you know, from the professional standpoint, we're not in the environment every day to know. And a lot of times, yeah, there might be that waiting game at the beginning. Is this typical or atypical for their age? And I know even that is hard. And that offers- Especially with all the, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but especially no, with all this, like the CDC milestones and right. the fact that they, they changed recently. And so what do you go with? What What's the guideline? I mean, you- you spend the first year of your child's life making sure that you've ensured that they have proper nutrition and a safe place to sleep. But you don't think about how all the little things that we do every day from tying, you know, putting on our shoes to putting a t-shirt on over our own head. Those are all skills that these tiny humans have to learn. So it's hard to know which skills they should be able to grasp by a certain is. How do I know um, at this stage if he's where he needs to be without bringing in a professional to work with him one-on-one? -on -one? Right. You're exactly right. And even when you're looking up milestones, 
they can vary a little bit, you know, and I know that that can be confusing sometimes. And then when you're looking at milestones, they even vary not only by age, but by gender, because like you said, boys tend to be a little bit slower at meeting some of these milestones. So it can be really hard for parents. And I know overwhelming. My best advice is kind of like what you did, Shelby, was early on, you reached out to me, you reached out to me again. And the best thing is to stay in communication with a professional, get an outside perspective, because it can be hard, especially when I'm sure you were feeling so isolated in your thoughts and your worries. And Mm -hmm. when you talk to family about it, I'm assuming that can even be a little bit more difficult because Shelly, you can even talk about this a little bit because you went through, you have this professional experience your son went through speech and then I'm sure Shelby at some point voiced some concerns for you. So how did you process that information as a grandparent? So a little bit removed, but still very engaged in the situation. How did you process that news of, oh, now Gavin has a speech delay. Oh, now he needs occupational therapy. Now we're getting an autism evaluation. What was that like for you from your perspective? Well, when she first mentioned it to me, well, like you said, boys do meet those milestones a little bit differently, you know, and then as much as we hate to say this, I think COVID set back a lot of children, not just the little ones, but they were so isolated for so long. And so I'm like, maybe it's all of that. Just give him a little bit more time. And then we still weren't seeing anything. And when she mentioned getting a a speech evaluation, well, the first thing you got to do is get his ear, you know, his hearing check. Well, he hears fine. And so I was able to process the speech therapy, but I had the harder time with the occupational therapy because my experience with occupational therapy is with high school students. And so uh, in my mind, I kept thinking he can pick up four and five things in one hand and walk around. He can pick up little things and put in his mouth. I mean, fine motor skills. I don't think there's a deficit there. And when Shelby was telling me some of the other issues going on with Gavin, I just went to my OT that comes to the high school. She is an amazing lady and I just love her to death. I asked her, I said, can I talk to you on a personal note when you're done with with treating my kids today? And she said, oh, most definitely. And I would show her some of the little videos that I had taken. She was like, Okay, Shelly, you know that OT also deals with sensory and tries to get that sensory kid ready for the real world. And I said, no, I didn't know that. So that helped me process it a lot better because she was giving me a different way of looking at it because I was looking at it like all my other kids with fine motor. And so then when Shelby mentioned about getting the autism screening done, I was like, yes, now I can, I can see that. And I... I know I've told her this several times, but just because you may have a child with those issues doesn't mean as a parent, you are a failure. If anything, she's doing exactly what she needs to be doing because she's being that advocate. And if you don't get the answers that you want to hear or need to hear from one, that gut will tell you, no, this isn't what's right for my kid. I need to keep going. 
So she kept going until she found someone who would say, yes, there, you do need to do this. You need to have speech. You need to have OT. And she stuck with that. And it'll take time, but I'm sure our little guy will prosper and succeed just like Justin did with his speech therapy. Thank you for saying that, that a diagnosis of any kind isn't a failure on the parent's part, because I I know I've seen these kids with autism specifically thrive. I've seen you have students that are pre-verbal. That's a term that I use because um, my my son, he hasn't started speaking yet, but I am not going to take that away from him, but that's a possibility. It's something that we're working towards all the time. So it's not that he's non-verbal. He's just pre-verbal. It feels empowering. So anyway, I've seen these kids that are you know still pre-verbal, but they're in high school already. So people have given up hope and then they start talking or they are able to read some sight work. And so it's, it's really easy to feel like you're, you know, you're a failure. You're putting, you're putting your child in this box with this diagnosis, but it's, it's not a failing. It just feels that way for a minute. And, uh, but it's definitely not. I had a a professional ask me one day if I was bilingual. Well, I had two different students at the time and I won't use their names, um, but they had their own way of communicating, whether it be with a certain sign language that wasn't the American sign language. It was just that student sign language. (laughs) That's how he communicated. Shelby knows who I'm talking about. And then the other one, he had some severe speech issues, but I was able to understand both of those because I would have people come into my room and they would try to say something and they would look at me and go, what is he saying? So I kind of laughed when they asked me if I was bilingual. I said, well, I speak. And I listed those two students' names because it was in the classroom setting. And uh, they just laughed and said, I never thought about it that way. But you're right, you are. <laughs> yeah, right. Definitely. And love that you mentioned a feeling heard type of situation. Shelby, you mentioned that too. You know, you thought that you were going crazy because you didn't feel heard or you didn't feel validated in your concerns for Gavin. And Shelly, that's something that you probably experience a lot dealing with parents. So for parents who feel like they aren't heard, especially when they're trying to advocate for their child and the school system, what piece of advice do you have for them? I'm sure that could be useful for Shelby and so many other parents out there who are just feeling at a loss and especially the ones with students entering the school system. Maybe they're in very similar situations as Shelby and they're like, okay, I know something's going on. We haven't been able to get any sort of diagnosis, but I'm worried about how school's going to look like for them. And they just feel overwhelmed and unheard. Uh, What advice do you have for them? Interesting that you asked that question because I had a conversation just last night with a parent of two students, two children with autism. Biggest thing, the most important thing in my opinion is they have to continue to be that advocate. Don't accept no. Make sure that you as the parent is the voice of that kid and keep, keep fighting until you get what you think that they need. Um, I know as a school system, we have certain guidelines that we have to go by. And I know, you know, that with uh, speech, it has to be educationally based and not clinic based. 
and same with OT. So sometimes there's that fine line there, but they can keep talking to their doctors and say, this kid needs an outside speech therapist that's not going to come to the school that we can address these other concerns with. Same with OT or PT. There are always resources available if they keep asking the question. I have found more and more resources available in the last couple of years that I've shared with parents that I have in my whole 30 years of teaching because I just keep asking questions so that I can kind of have a list of resources for parents. They just, parents just don't give up. Keep being the voice of those kids and you have to keep fighting. What kinds of devices or systems have you been able to use with your students in the classroom? Specifically ones that are related to communication delays, but you can talk about any. I, I mean, well, in the past, I'm trying, Caitlin, you'll have to help me. It was a big communication device. We used it like eight years ago and it's out of date now with technology, but as a company, she came to us on behalf of uh, three of my students and we did the paperwork through their uh, Medicaid or Medicare and were able to get these communication devices. The problem was only one of the parents was actually using the communication device at home. So it wasn't good enough for that kid just to get it at school. It needed to be done in both places so that it would benefit the student. So those, those didn't work too well. But recently, we are using an iPad with an app called Proloquo. I'm sure, Caitlin, you are aware of that one. Yes. And I tell you, an iPad is a lot better than this. The other device was big and cumbersome. And if you were in a wheelchair trying to find a way to safely secure the device to the wheelchair so that the kid would have immediate access to it was very difficult. But with an iPad, everybody uses an iPad. So these kids look like just everybody else. And you can program them for certain things for that kid. And we have one now that we're using that. And he will sit there and he's able to use that device. Sometimes where we don't really want him to, um, but he's, he's communicating and he knows how to access what he wants to tell us. I've had this, another student also using that same app and be able to go into a restaurant. Honestly, I think it was McDonald's, but he was able to tell the cashier what he wanted using that communication device. And because it's now on an iPad or he can even be used on a phone, it, he's just like every other kid because everybody has a phone or an iPad in their hand. I know technology can be a pain, but I think that some of the things that they've been able to produce to help people and allow them to work in society and with other people, I think it's really great. A few months ago, I was on Facebook and I saw a video of a kindergarten teacher. She said, I'm always asked what parents need to make sure their kids know before they start kindergarten. And she was like, most people expect me to say the ABCs or the count to 10 or their colors. But no, what I want parents to do to teach their kids and get them ready for kindergarten is to show them how to use a boxed lunch. Show them how to put their straw in their juice box, to open their packaging, to know which items can and can't be thrown away. She said these kids come in with their cute little lunch pails and these fancy packed lunches, and they don't know what to do with them. So that's what I want parents to do with their kids is to make sure they know how to eat their lunch. 
And I thought that was really funny. And I'm using that as my intro to the next question because you have high school kids, which is vastly different than entering kindergarten. But are there anything, uh, are there any things that you can think of that uh, you find your students aren't prepared for that they need to be? Well, even though what you said, you said was funny and it doesn't apply to high school, you would be surprised. I have special ed students who don't know how or who are not able to open their meal carton. I have had a young man who just graduated that couldn't open the milk carton and he couldn't drink out of a milk carton. So he had to be able to ask for a straw. The normal things that you would think of entering high school, the most important, I think, is to be able to follow a schedule because you know, now you're traveling six or seven class periods and being able to follow a schedule and not be overwhelmed, being able to verbalize or use a sign or something that they need to go to the restroom. And you would think by the time they get in high school, these students couldn't tie their own shoes. I can't tell you the number of times that I've had students that can't tie shoes when they enter my classroom but I will tell you, they all know how to tie their shoes by the time they graduate because they work on that. I just think it's really important that they can communicate their needs. They can follow a schedule. Social skills. We haven't really talked about that, but that's very important as well. You know, they have to be able to interact with their classmates, with their teacher, with the lunch lady, whoever. And so they need to have those basic skills. The rest we can work with, but it's hard when they don't know how to follow a schedule. I, I, I can't tell you how many times we've, I've had to escort kids because they don't know where they're going. We have to do um, pictures so they know where to go because they can't remember. But those kind of things, if we can have conversations before they enter high school or even middle school, because in middle school, you still travel, then I think that would benefit the kid. Have you noticed a vast difference in your students who were able to receive early intervention services, speech, OT, even PT for some of your kids, depending on their needs versus students who didn't get those things until they entered the school system? Yeah, I think we kind of touched on some of that, but yes, you can see a big difference The students who have been receiving services from, you know, either three years old or kindergarten, it's hard to put in words to that the difference that it does make, because those are the parents who are involved. Those are the ones that work with their kids and you can see growth. Even in high school, you're able to see that growth. Those that didn't get diagnosed until later it's like they have to go back and start from square one. Right. Those, three, those three kids that just were identified, the youngest one was a freshman. And one, um, I misspoke, was a junior in high school, just got diagnosed. Um, but the one, the, the youngest one that was a freshman, she had to go back and, and basically relearn basic math facts because I guess they just passed her along and she never mastered those skills So when she got into the algebra one and geometry part of high school math, she really, really, really struggled. And that's when it came apparent to the teacher, you know, we've got some issues here. So she had to go back and relearn all of those. So those that were diagnosed early, the special ed teacher was able to work on those basic skills leading up to high school. 
still are not going to be able to do some of the more involved abstract geometry problems, but at least they were able to do your basic math facts. So we want to leave on a positive note. You've given us some great stories about the young man who learned how to drive, even though he was told he wouldn't, and your other student who is now able to work as a volunteer firefighter. I think that's awesome. I know exactly the student that you're talking about, and he really did want to join the military. And I know he was very disappointed when that wasn't um, a reality for him. But knowing that he's now working as a volunteer firefighter, that makes me almost proud for him because that's that's a really big thing. That's not easy. So it's cool that he can he does that and wanted to do that. But do you have any other memorable experiences? You realized that you were really making a difference for these kids? Yes, I will get teary-eyed. So I guess it's a good thing it's a podcast and not a visual. I had a young man that was very, very involved, was in a wheelchair. And he spoke some, but he would look at an apple and say red, and he would expect us to give him the red item. Well, I told mom one time, I said, if he says he wants red and there's a, there's a apple and a strawberry, how am I supposed to know which red item he wants? And so she's like, I never thought of that. So we had to work with him differently, but I sat down with her before he entered high school in the end of his eighth grade year. And I said, what is something that you would want for your child in high school? What is something that you would want? And she said, well, we were told, um, cause he had a TBI. She said, the doctors told us that anything past living past the age of two is a miracle. So anything that he can do is great. And I said, okay, but what would you personally like to see him do? And she said, I want to see him walk. And I'm like, challenge accepted. That young man, he had a, a walker and they, they had one, but they didn't know how to use it. They had, no one had ever showed them how to use it. So I told him, I said, you bring it to school and I will get with the PT and we're going to figure this out. And so she brought it up to school. We were every day we went to PE, we would put him in this walker and it took three of us to get him in and out of this walker because, you know, you got to strap them in to make sure they're secure and you got to hold. It was, it was an ordeal, but we did this every day. Um, in April, we host the area special Olympic track meet and they just started a new event for track and it was called the partner walk. So we registered this young man for that event and his whole family was there and I was able to walk with him that was going to be the goal. And that's mom had never seen, none of his family had ever seen the fruits of our labor. We were trying to save it for that day. So that day comes and we put him in his walker and that kid who was not supposed to walk, walked across that finish line by himself. I just guided him so that he would go straight. Otherwise he would spin in circles. He moved his feet and he walked. There was not a dry eye in that place at that time because he was never supposed to do that. We worked so hard the next, well, I had him for seven years. So the, the, the rest of the six years. So at graduation, he was able to walk across the stage and receive his diploma in this walker. This kid was never supposed to do any of that, but we made it happen. The other young man moved to Katusa his the summer before his junior year. And his mom came to me and she said, we were told that our kid would never read. And here again, I looked at this mother and I said, 
challenge accepted. And, and so we worked with him every day and we had sent home sight words and different things to read. So the end of his second year, we did student-led parent-teacher conferences and he invited his mom and he invited his grandparents. He was very close to his grandparents. He did the introduction, told him what he was going to do. And he had done a keynote with all of the sight words that he had, he knew how to read. And I controlled the, the slides because he would read it and I would hit for the next slide. I made the mistake of looking over at his family and they were there in tears. And after he read the last one, he was supposed to do a little closing, but his mom came up and gave him a great big hug. His grandparents came over to me and gave me a hug and said, thank you for not giving up on our boy. And the mother told me, she said, I knew he could do it. I just had to find the right teacher that could help him. Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us. Your experiences are so vast and I've seen you teach kids with emotional needs and physical needs and just normal academic needs and maybe even just all three combined into one kiddo. And I'm so grateful that I was able to grow up around people who are different than me because I feel like my experience as being your daughter has given me the voice and the power to be the parent of someone that has special needs. And it doesn't make it easier. It's still really hard, but I know that nobody is going to be allowed to put my son in a box. Nobody's going to be able to tell me that he'll never read or that he'll never do this or he'll never do that. Because if it's something that he wants to do, or if it's something that he needs to do, he has a mom who has a voice and is empowered enough to help him. And I feel like a lot of that is strength that I've um, garnered from you being my mom. So you don't make me cry. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing your experiences. 